I probably would not say that you should trust your therapists. <laughs> Turn this think, off right now. <laughs> I think that therapists earn trust and and should not just be given trust. Um, and a lot about finding a good therapist is understanding whether or not they have the correct training that you're needing. And also what are their cultural co competencies that we're also looking at professional bias, which is different than me being able to show up with a Christian couple versus me being Christian and then projecting my own Christianity on whatever couple I see, whether they are Christian or not. Currently, there is only one association in the United States that certifies sex therapists, and that's the American Association for Sexual Educators, Counselors and Therapists. It's ASECT, and you can find that at AASECT.org. And that is where I would find trustworthy professionals that still have to earn their trust. Well said. Love disclaimers. I love more information, the better. Welcome everybody to my channel. My name is Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuanto and sometimes I decide to bring in the very best therapists and specifically sex therapists that the state of Utah has to offer. So welcome to the Mormon History Hoedown, Natasha Helper. Hello. I'm super glad to be here. So glad that we are friends and you have been able to be so wise in the words that you give the sex Mormon community, but mostly myself. And <laughs> my life has changed by all of the wisdom that you've been able to oh, that's super nice. say across the interwebs to me and in person. So Natasha and I um, have been friends for a couple of years and just so grateful for the wisdom that she adds to this space. Um, Natasha was famously excommunicated from the Mormon church a few years ago for, how would you describe, giving good salient advice in line with yeah. best practices? Yeah, I usually say I was excommunicated for my sexual health advocacy. That's how I state it. And that's what really kind of happened, even though I think it's usually talked about a little bit differently. Like I was excommunicated for apostasy or for not following the leaders, but really it was about my advocacy and public voice on sexual health. Mm -hmm. With the intention of what? Trying to tear down the Mormon church by telling them that people are allowed to masturbate or just giving people a healthier view of themselves and sexuality that might not make them feel as broken as the church might want them to think that they are. That's just the way I would put it. But yeah, no, definitely the latter. It was never my intent to bring things down. It's just to improve. One of the reasons that I brought Natasha Helfer on today is as a clinician, as somebody who specializes in the area of sex therapy, I wanted to have you on so that we could talk about the impact of just generally purity culture at large, whether that's the Mormon or Christian evangelical type of community. And one of the most popular proponents of some harmful ideas is this, this gaggle of ladies, these sisters at Girl Defined. This video is found on Fundy Snark Uncensored. It talks a lot about Girl Defined. And one of the top comments on Reddit, I think is interesting, says, it's the ultimate hypocrisy. People make a living preaching purity culture, now making more money admitting how much it fucked them up. 
people that advocate for removing sex ed from schools, admitting how much their lack of knowledge fucks them up. And and then I, I can read the rest of the comment when we get to the most insane part of the video. So if you're unfamiliar with Girl Defined, let me go ahead and read what they're all about. So I can summarize it all in one quick paragraph. Uh, Girl Defined, it's a YouTube channel. They have books. It's run by sisters Kristen Clark and Bethany Beal. They are known for their Christian ministry aimed at young women focusing on topics like faith, purity, feminism. They're a big down, big thumbs down from them on that one. Um, relationships from their conservative Christian perspective. They write books and blogs and videos and have courses and websites on all kinds of media platforms. And their content centers around just very traditional Christian values and all of the things that probably don't need a lot of explanation for my audience who's watching right now. You know exactly who we're talking about and exactly the type of messages that they are proponents of that are sometimes very harmful. So there has been a lot of recent development on their channel and the ways that they talk about sex now that both of them are married and they want to be like very sex positive in a way we're like we love it we just we're totally into it and they talk about lingerie and they want to help christian women have the best sex lives possible but then unfortunately they want to kind of be the people who will teach you and heal you and give you resources without whatsoever questioning or talking about the christianity and the messages that they uh, the messages that they promote generally already. So selling you the solution to a problem that Christianity, Mormon culture, a lot of these dogmatic religious cultures, not caring very much about what actually comes out of that. So for a little introduction on this video, there's um, a content creator that goes by Friendly Atheist. And he writes this Substack article and introduces this clip by saying, one of the many, many problems with purity culture in evangelical Christian circles is that it teaches young women that sex and every single step on the road to penetration is to be avoided at all costs before marriage. But then the thinking goes, as soon as you say, I do, sex will be magical and wonderful and perfect. And there's no chance that you and your husband are sexually incompatible because why would God do that to you? <laughs> Comment so far, Natasha. Why would God do that to you? Yeah, that just shows a lot of the na naivete, right? Naivete mm -hmm. of how sex works. Just God loves you and he sent you a partner who wants to have the right amount of sex in the right godly way that you do. So Dr. Glenn Hill and his wife Phyllis Hill have a whole ministry where they counsel other couples on how to connect with each other. And they were recently interviewed by the pro-abstinence Girl Defined co-host Bethany Beal. Most of the interview is exactly what you'd expect. The Hills say they didn't have sex until their wedding night. And we will start there with where the clips go. Y'all are an incredible couple. And I'm just excited for the entire Girl Defined community to get to know you. I hope that y'all become like the, you know, the mentor couple of this community because we need it and we need godly marriages to look up to. We come from conservative uh, Christian okay. background, uh, very much during a time when purity culture was all that was talked about. And so, yeah. uh, you know, that was kind of probably, that was the only thing talked about. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of understood what not to do. Dr. Glenn, how did you feel when you were going into marriage as a young yeah, man? Y'all were, were babies, I feel like. I got married at 30, so I'm like, y'all were literally babies. <laughs> but what, what was your mindset going into that? We went into marriage thinking we're set up. We have nailed this. We love God with a passion. We were deeply involved mm -hmm. in church and ministry. 
Uh, we read scripture all the time together. We prayed together uh, continuously. So we knew that this was pretty much a slam dunk. We're on point and it's going to be uh, phenomenal. Uh, we were a little bit well, shocked. Our first sexual encounter would be spiritual, would be like beyond um, any joy experience in our lives. Mm. And mm. it was really just the opposite for me. And for me, it was the greatest 11 seconds of my life. So, and I was shocked at how ungrateful my new wife was. I was like, what? That was a big win. But I had no idea. Cause I mean, literally for me, you know, we have penetration for the first time and there you go. I ejaculated and wow, what a yeah. huge win. And I did not know that my partner was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So let's pause it there. Yeah. Um, he did not know that his partner wasn't having a good time. Yeah. What? Why? Huh? Is that normal? And should that even be allowed or respected? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're doing actually a really good job of, of explaining how so many folks are raised, right? It's almost like good sex will be earned by righteous behavior, sure. right? So as long as we can stay righteous, and follow the rules and obey God, whatever that means to certain people and whatever church you belong to, they have different ideas about how you obey God and what that means. And so but as long as I'm checking off all those things, um, then we will get this great reward of having good sex. And, and this is really what purity culture environments do. They put up all these do nots, do not do this, do not do that, do not explore yourself, do not know yourself, do not explore another partner. Do not explore the other sex. Do not know much about anything um, because that all may lead to promiscuity and sexual exploration. And we don't want that. And so it is this abstinence education approach. It's it's even made its way into public school systems, right? We really have mm -hmm. taken more of an abstinence approach um, to sexual, to public sexual education due to a lot of these kinds of ideas. And then voila, we're just shocked and surprised that things don't automatically turn around. Um, again, like I said, after a ceremony takes place, um, and now we're supposed to just have it all figured out because, like you said earlier, why wouldn't God want us to have great sex? So it's, it's an equational approach. It's if you do A, B, and C, you should be able to get D, E, and F. Um, this is something I've also noticed people start having kind of faith uh, transition structure cracks on, right? Oh, yeah. Because it's like, why didn't it go the way that I had thought or the way I had been promised? Why did I have genital pain? Why did I not have an orgasm? Why did my spouse not have an orgasm with me? Why are we struggling so much? Um, these are not things that people are prepared for at all. They're not prepared for the complexities of sexuality, of negotiating your sexuality with another person. We don't even know how to negotiate sexuality with ourselves. How are you supposed to how are you supposed to negotiate it with a whole other person? And so we're kind of throwing, you know, people into very unprepared spaces, which uh, I mean, some people come out of that fine and they figure it out, and that's great. But many do not. Many have what I call kind of honeymoon trauma um, and and kind of experiences like this. Like, how, if it was good for me, how could it not be good for you? And I mean, it's good that they're talking about it. It's good that they're normalizing this. That, that is a good thing for mm -hmm. people within these communities to just be more open. But to your point, I'm guessing they're not going to challenge the teachings they were taught mm -hmm. that led to this 
being a problem in their lives. They're mm-hmm. just going to skirt around that and 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 say, oh, it's not the teachings. It's what we can do about it now. Mm-hmm. And from your opinion, we're both we're both jokey gals. We're both funny gals. And talking about his just lack of interest and overall disrespect of if she was having a good time or not, not really doing anything to forward better ideas that make your your wife and your spouse uh, feel like they're equal partners to you in the bedroom, that you care about the intimacy and their pleasure. I mean, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think what he's describing is his young self and the moment that he was completely unprepared. I didn't I didn't necessarily hear him say that he didn't respect his wife. The problem is that the culture doesn't respect the wife to teach the husband how to be with a wife, right? Mm-hmm. So so I I think yes. I mean, humor in some ways normalizes, it validates, um it can sometimes it can be hurtful and it can be dismissive. So humor is a, an interesting thing to use. I would hope that um I mean, I've never watched this before, but I would hope that he could get more serious about that. Like, let, like, let's pause on that for a minute. Why wasn't I prepared? Why did I have these expectations? How could that have been hurtful to a partner? Um, does that even form a sense of entitlement that maybe I was mm-hmm. offered as a male, cis male, heterosexual person in our culture? Um, what are we doing to teach young men differently now? Mm-hmm. Um, especially in our church communities, are they doing that work? Right. Yeah, well said. Um, sense of entitlement, I think, is what comes up a lot in these types of discussions. So keep playing. Um, I mean, that's you just didn't do that. That was not acceptable. You, you didn't talk yeah. about real things such as uh, sex. Mm-hmm. The wedding night and the honeymoon was a disaster. And Phyllis figured out that, uh, so we did a lot of water skiing uh, on our honeymoon because Phyllis figured out if we're in a boat with other people, ain't none of that sex stuff happening. And I did not realize I'd married a water skiaholic. And uh, oh, so literally, so we'd have breakfast, and then I'd be like, "Hey, babe, you uh, like want to go back to?" The yeah. Show? No, no, no. Let's go water skiing. We'd come in for lunch, go right back out to the boat, and that's oh, what we did our entire honeymoon. And of course, by the end of the day, Phyllis is exhausted. She's like, "Oh, babe, I'm just so tired." And I'm like, "Well, if we hadn't water skied so much, we <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> neither of us were prepared for the disappointment, for the trauma. Like there was, yeah. for me, it the whole experience." And I didn't have a voice. I didn't know how to communicate what was happening for me. And so I was just very quiet. And, you know, uh, water skiing felt safe. So that's, and I knew how to water ski. So that was a comfortable place for me. Mm -hmm. Glenn had, uh, he had booked this honeymoon place that was like an actual honeymoon resort. Mm -hmm. And everything was like red velvet and mirrors mirrors everywhere. And I was just Mm. mortified because I wasn't comfortable with Mm. any of it. Like it just, it went from zero to a hundred way too quickly Mm. for me. It didn't feel right, but I didn't know how to say that. And I didn't know how to communicate my pain in it. Glenn was just so confused. Mm. And so he experienced tons of pain on our honeymoon because of the way I was reacting to everything. And so we made a lot of bad conclusions. I mean, Mm. it didn't take long. For us to actually just decide that I was broken. Mm-hmm. And wow. I accepted that. I'm like, yep, you're right. I'm one of those broken people. Because I, I was so sexually activated, which is the typical male of the vast, yeah. vast majority. It's not 100%, but it's pretty close. 
Um, so I was sexually activated far more readily and far more frequently than she was. Got it. So mm-hmm. obviously she was broken because she was never, I don't mm-hmm. like to say never with yeah. human behavior, but she was never sexually activated. So yeah. obviously she's damaged. She's broken mm-hmm. and there's just something uh, wrong with her. And again, I was not the voice saying that, but I didn't yeah. say otherwise. Reactions. Yeah. I mean, this is like a, a regular day in my office, mm-hmm. right? This is the story. Um, I think in our culture in general, men are seen as, you know, and again, when we use the terms men and women, right? These are very binary terms. When you're not allowed to explore your sexuality, to understand yourself sexually, to understand your orientations and your identities. And yeah, she comes into this space where all of a sudden that was a very well said thing from zero to a hundred. She didn't know how to voice her concerns. She said that several times. I didn't know how to talk about it. We don't give people language around these things. We don't we don't give people a sense of even I think if you're socialized as a woman, you're not really socialized to take up space. You're not really socialized to vocalize. In a lot of these Christian communities, you hear a lot of messages about women being quiet, being women being the helpmeets, women being, you know, not not to rush to loud laughter, right? So mm-hmm. there's this idea of being ladylike and being a certain type of woman. And and especially with all the slut shaming that happens, you're not supposed to initiate. You're yeah. not supposed to want. You're supposed to kind of be a passive kind of container for the man to, yes, bring his activation as he said, <laughs> to bring his activation to me and then made for me to awaken in that. But that's not really how good sex happens. And so she's left with almost zero tools other than avoidance, that was a great tool she came up with. Let's like let's go water skiing. So I'm gonna avoid sexuality. So I don't because I don't know how to talk to you about it. I don't know how to negotiate it. And then I, I think they're both spot on that it's oftentimes the well, it depends. Sometimes it's the lower libido partner that gets to be the broken one or the one who's less interested, because how could you not be interested in sex? Right. So that's that allonormativity that everybody should want sex. But sometimes, too, in other cases, especially in Christian communities, if you want sex too much, that can be the broken person, too. Like, mm-hmm. you're a sex addict. You're too carnal. So mm-hmm. it can go either way. But yes, I think oftentimes in in that honeymoon phase when people are just starting to sexually behave in, in negotiation with each other, it's oftentimes the lower interest or lower drive partner that gets pathologized. Mm-hmm unfortunate as can be. Um, so you mentioned, you know, don't have the tools or the language in more ideal circumstances, Christian couples or not. Um, if somebody does have that kind of interaction on their wedding night where the guy, he is ready to go 11 seconds later, it's over, not super concerned with the wife reaching orgasm or having uh, any interaction or pleasure or, you know, picking up on her her cues of how she feels and, you know, not being reciprocated, all of that stuff um, from your expertise, let the listeners know, you know, if that does happen to somebody or has happened in the past and they still feel like they're the broken partner or something, um, what are some of the tools that you suggest on finding that language? I do hope we can have compassion for our younger, dumber selves. <laughs> if we did, especially if we weren't really offered the the system to help us with this. I, 
I do try to have couples instead of blaming each other, like, well, you didn't care about my orgasm or you didn't care about my drive or you didn't care about this or that. It's like, can we blame the system, right? Can we blame the the communities that taught us about sex, whether it was school or church or families that didn't really give us the tools. Um, So that's usually a healthier approach, especially if you're still wanting to be in relationship with this person you might still love and (laughs) want to have better sex with. Um, But then also along with that, taking personal accountability, like, you know, so kind of saying, okay, the system didn't teach me this. And because of that, I harmed you, right? I harmed you or I harmed myself or we harmed each other. And can we take accountability for those things? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think education is key. Once people start understanding, oh, you mean we could have done this instead, which could be as simple as maybe on our honeymoon, we should have known that we shouldn't go to intercourse from kissing. You know, if, if all we were doing was kissing each other across the altar for the first time, and then we're just supposed to be in bed having intercourse maybe that wasn't the best plan. Maybe we should have had a plan in place that would have helped us move into that type of intimacy if we weren't used to it. Um, Especially like you mentioned that idea that things will just work together and you'll be blessed in this union Mm -hmm. because you're so righteous and what could possibly go wrong. And I thought it was interesting that you said at the beginning that sometimes that puts a crack in people's faith sometimes when it's not everything that they pictured and they kind of question God, they question the system in and of itself. So I'd love for you to talk any more about that. I think that is really profound and interesting because it is kind of like you have to deconstruct if this is not everything that I was promised, who's at fault here. And we don't always want to turn to the system and question God and -hmm. our religious upbringing, Mm -hmm. but to get to that healthier road, where else are we going to question? Right. Well, and people, when they start questioning, like, well, why didn't this go the way I expected? Which is a pretty normal question to ask throughout life mm-hmm. <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. People will often try to find meaning and reasons. That's We're kind of data collectors as humans. We're story collectors. We want to make sense of our experience. Well, so the problem in religious cultures is that they have an answer for both things, right? If it goes well, it's because you were blessed right? You did what was right. You must've been doing something of what was right. And so now you're blessed with it going well. If it's not going well, there's usually two reasons for this that a Christian community will, will offer. One is that you're sinning. You're doing something, something incorrect to not get the result that was promised as a blessing. And that can be really small things. Like you think, oh, if I'm sinning, well, does that mean I'm you know, cheating or looking at pornography or what does that mean? You know, that I wouldn't get this blessing. But for some people who are not doing any of those things, it can be really smaller things like, well, I must not be praying enough. I must not be taking my calling seriously enough. So now you can get into some really scrupulous ways Mm of kind of understanding that about yourself. The second reason why things don't go well that they can explain it is, well, you're going through a trial that God wants you to go through so that you can grow and develop. So there's no, the, the, the religious kind of narrative has an answer for these. Yeah, the house meetings. always wins. Right, the house always wins. So if you're in that space, people will often stay in that, in that meaning making that the church has provided. Mm. At times, that doesn't work. People, it, it just, it's starting to, that's what I mean by it's starting to crack. Like, well, 
was was the church telling me the truth? Is this the type of God I want to worship? If this is how he functions, or you know, usually it's not she, usually it's he in these in these settings. Um, is it that I'm being misinformed? Is it that, you know, and especially if they're starting to come across information that might be contrary to what the church is is expressing. It's easy to ignore information from what your community is telling you when it's not part of your lived experience. But now if you've had some lived experience, like this disappointment, this honeymoon trauma, now it becomes more emotional. Now you might be more open to listening to information that otherwise would have been closed off to you. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, thank you for explaining all of that. Should we get back into the clip? Sure. So we just kind of accepted, well, too bad. You know, this poor woman mm. happens to be broken and this poor guy happens to be married to a broken woman. I understood enough to know that this was my duty. This mm. was my wifely yeah. duty. So it didn't matter if I liked it or didn't like it or that I felt pain. Mm. For me, it's like this This is what marriage is now. Like I would say all the oh. fun we had dating all of a sudden didn't exist anymore. I was trying to survive and I was trying to um, avoid as much as possible sex. And so I was always yeah. running, you know, running away from him. Well, I was just going to say where in all of that, that she's describing, is there room for her drive, for her arousal, for her, for her playfulness? It's, yeah, it's duty. It's, it's obligation. It's, it doesn't matter if I have pain. I mean, that these are really, really harmful messages, which again, so far I'm not hearing them attack where those messages are coming from, but we can go forward. Mm-hmm. His life, he sco- was scoring pretty high on obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. And so patterns mm-hmm. were hugely important to him and a lot of pain when things weren't done, quote unquote, right. Well, and, God's um, way. God's Which way. Then lose my way. Right. Just right. <laughs> For me, I felt yeah. like I couldn't win. Sex was painful, as in emotionally yeah. painful. It was confusing for me. And then just the everyday things, like, you know, I would do the laundry, but I wouldn't fold things just right, or I wouldn't put them yeah. away just right. And so then Glenn would redo things. She'd do the laundry, I'd come home and I'd redo it. But right. She didn't wow. do it, you know, air quotes, she didn't yeah. do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I would redo everything. And for me, it was a very real pain point that Mm. the towels are not folded the same and they're not stacked up perfectly straight. She spent so much energy. It's just, you know, so much guilt. And uh, then I brought that to her, which I didn't know what was happening with me either. Mm. I wasn't doing it to to be cruel, Uh, but she spent so much energy trying to figure me out. And, you know, we dated for four years, (laughs) but we were not, often we were not even in the same city Mm -hmm. until the Mm. end. But these were not things that I saw in our dating relationship there was yeah. never a pattern like you you got to do this this way that never came out it was easier for me just to conclude i'm broken so sorry buddy that's what you got yeah. and you know i yes. did the mandatory number of times sex in a month whatever that yeah. was but there was not pleasure in it for well, me and i didn't mm. actually think there was pleasure in it for any women this is just a wifely duty thing. And um, there's no one out there having fun in this arena. Mm. And so that's kind of how we functioned. 
So the thing that stands out to me the most out of that particular clip was, again, the lack of relational education, which is, again, when we think about comprehensive sexual education, we're talking about all the things, the feelings, the relationship dynamics, consent, coercion, honesty, mutual pleasure, so many principles that usually, especially in our public school system, sexual education is considered the bump and grind parts, right? And the reproductive parts, like this is kind of how sex happens. Um, we're not even we're not even including parts of the body like the clitoris because it's not a reproductive organ. So we're not giving a holistic approach to sexuality. So when they're talking about some of these kind of other things that were impacting their relationship, like his control, you know, issues, whether they've had zero education on relationships, they've had zero education on what healthy marital dynamics mm -hmm. are, much less how to talk about sex. If they can't even talk about how they're folding their towels mm -hmm. <laughs> without having an OCD like rupture, um, and he probably didn't even know he had that at the time, this is starting to really delve into kind of some, you know, abusive and controlling behaviors that like he says, it's not like it was his intent, but there's zero education. There's zero accountability. Um, in these communities, it's like married sex is healthy sex. So as long as you're married, nobody's asking questions. Who's helping this couple? Who's mentoring this couple? Who's holding this couple accountable for how they're treating each other in this community? It's like, no, you checked off the box of marriage. You're good to go. Mm -hmm. And you can see how so many things can be happening in very unhealthy and even potentially abusive ways um, in relationships that can lead to chronic years of domestic violence, of all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, so very, very sad. Yeah. And sure. very problematic. What do you think about just the ways that you could say patriarchy and gender roles um, can also, from, from Christianity, can also influence this type of dynamic and underpin more of these abusive tactics and behaviors that just do not help a couple thrive? Well, right. So if you have the idea that the patriarch is supposed to preside over the home, the patriarch meaning the person who owns the penis, um, but there's no discussion about whether or not he's got OCD or whether that penis owner has, you know, so, so like is a sociopath or there's, there's no discussion about that. There's no like, oh, maybe this person might have a difficult <laughs> might have a difficult time, quote unquote, presiding in a healthy way, which isn't even in a healthy construct to begin with, sure. right? So we're already starting with an unhealthy construct, which is not egalitarian. And then we're not even kind of monitoring who these people are and what traits they bring to those kinds of gender roles. Like another typical gender roles, the mother or the woman is going to be caring and emotional and soft and a soft place to land. And there's lots of women who are feisty and they're not soft and they're not, you know, and so when they have these gender roles either in the bedroom or with their own children imposed upon them, that can create a lot of dissonance and again, broke a feeling of brokenness um, and can even lead to abusive stuff because it's like, well, I'm just supposed to have children. I'm just supposed to have children. So I'll have seven children, even though my mental health is nowhere in a space as maybe a person with bipolar that could handle seven children. Mm -hmm. And now I may be abusive to those children because I have zero emotional reserves. And so I may be either emotionally neglectful or emotionally abusive. And nobody's, everybody's blaming the mom 
but nobody's blaming the system to put her in that role when she had no business being in that role, mm -hmm. given her traits and her personality and her mental health. Zero um, involvement or inclusion of the vast human diversity that mm -hmm. we come in. And in your practice, while you're seeing so many people, especially from the ex-farming community, what do you what would you say in your office do you try to do versus what somebody if they're meeting with a bishop is trying to do that mm. might not have their happiness as the center focus right yeah and that's an interesting question because i think a bishop if you asked him from his world view he would say well i absolutely have your happiness in focus the way to happiness is through conforming to our system and i think from a mental health perspective we're trained that there are many ways to wellness and happiness and well-being. Um, and that depends on a myriad of factors. And so how are we going to help you self-determine what that's going to look like? Whereas a bishop or a priest or a pastor, especially from conservative religions, this is not always true of the more progressive religions. Um, it's going to be like, well, we have decided, you know, it's not self-determination. It's community determination yeah. and and the community led by a god right a, a deity who has given us these rules and these standards and these ideas that we have interpreted right because of course if you look at all the people who come from a god there's many interpretations <laughs> of what life and wellness should look like and that's what's going to be best for you so it's a more of a we know best for you versus a you know best for you approach that's the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. All right. And that leads us to this clip that is basically titled around YouTube, like the worst story from a sex therapist of all time. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much how it's titled. So I'd love to get your reaction to this. Um, so I think Phyllis is describing how she just felt like she was broken. She did not have a clitoris. And then talking to another Christian friend and where they went on how to discover that she indeed did have that body part. Like I was like, yeah, I'm broken. Like I didn't even think wow. that that was a weird sentence, but she said, okay, what can you define broken? What, what are you saying? What yeah. does that mean? And, and then I just said, oh, well, I don't have a clitoris. Um, Cause at this mm. point, Glenn had read enough to know that a clitoris was involved and um, yeah. didn't know where it was, but knew that that mattered and that had to do with yeah. an orgasm. And it's like, yeah, I, I've never orgasmed and there's no pleasure. I don't enjoy it. Matter of fact, I hate it. Wow. I just endure it. We just get through it as fast as possible. And, um, and so, yeah, we shared that openly and she wow. was in the medical field and uh, she was like, okay, whoa. What do you mean you don't have a clitoris? And our friend, after a, a bit, said, you know, I, I just feel like taking Phyllis in the back room and showing her what I'm talking about. Mm. Well, Phyllis started to stand up. Mm. Uh, and then this other woman said, but I just can't. I can't do that. Our oldest child had been born, uh, which is a little girl. Oh. And eventually, uh, Phyllis was changing uh, our daughter's diaper. And uh, our friend mm. showed her uh, on oh. um our little girl, you know, where the clitoris is located, which was huge information mm -hmm. wow. uh, for Phyllis. And again, it's stunning to me. At, that's pretty darn basic. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we're smart people and we were clueless. <laughs> Reactions to that. 
using a child mm. to spread their legs to inform grown adults on where the clitoris is. Yeah. Your thoughts, sex therapist, Natasha Helfer. Yeah, no, I, I can see how that is her- horrifically problematic. While I will say at the same time, I think that changing diapers of babies is actually the first time many people have seen genitals. Whether it's a babysitter who's doing it, right? You're, you've got a 12 or a 13 year old who's having to change a diaper of a sibling or of a, some of their babysitting uh, or adults, you know, themselves as they have children, because you cannot believe how restrictive some cultures are around this. It's, it's interesting. He says he read books, right? They read books. So they knew a clitoris existed. What kinds of books are they reading that don't have these illustrations? So they're probably reading what my guess would be, you know, Christian um, informed or recommended books, right? The books on approved lists that wouldn't have some of that pictography to actually show people um, what, what the genitals look like. And, you know, you don't have to have that be an actual, I mean, there's tons of illustrations. It doesn't have to be an actual body that you're looking at. If your concern is that you'd be looking at something quote unquote pornographic, right? Which again, many people in these communities have zero ability to differentiate between um, illustrations based for pleasure and for arousal, which is usually what pornography is about versus educational resources, just basic educational resources. So I, I can see why the reaction was what it was. We don't want to, like you said, spread our children's legs open to um, use as our sexual education. That's pretty horrific. At the same time, baby diapering, that's in a sense what you're doing. You're cleaning that area. And it's oftentimes the first time people see these parts, even parts that you, you know, like a clitoris, I mean, it can be hidden if you're not aroused, but even like a urethra or an anus or the vaginal opening, because most people have not been taught to look at their own bodies Many people in conservative cultures are having, you know, missionary position sex is the only way to have sex. They're not having oral sex. They're not really exploring their partner's genitals. Um, I, at least, you know, if you're born with a penis, you, you don't have to explore a lot to at least see what's there. You know, you can see your own genitalia. You can't see your own testicles, really. Um, and so one of the basic things I do in, in sex therapy interventions is have people do a mirror exercise and do it with themselves. So yeah, they were uncomfortable in going into the back room and dropping pants and showing each other, even though one of them was a me medical health provider, they were uncomfortable doing that, but they were comfortable during a diaper session to figure out basic anatomy. It's just, it just speaks to the tragedy that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and this isn't just in our country. You know, I think of people totally. who don't even know that they're having, if they've had intercourse because somebody's trying to penetrate a belly button, right? Or somebody's, or somebody's penetrating an anus instead of a vagina because they just are, are so inept in sexual education. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why all of that very well said, and one of the reasons why I wanted to share this clip with you and have you speak to it is by somebody who comes from Mormon culture and understands it well, what are we actually doing as, you know, when, when these 
there's Mormon clinicians and Christian therapists and all over there who can name it like this couple can. They can name the problems with purity culture. They can name it and define it, see the problems with it, but not actually offer any solutions to it and actually profit off of the dysfunction and just say basically that this is the only way though, that this is basically the only way. You can't you can't masturbate still. X, Y, and Z is all still a sin. And yeah, that they're, they're quite aware of the situation but still think that Christianity, their purity culture is the only way. Yeah, this is complicated too, because when we say they profit from this, in a sense, we're kind of trying to, we're, we're almost like, um, we're almost accusing them of, of making money off of this problem that they've created. And because I've even thought about this, I, mean, I profit from mental health problems. You know, I profit from... Um, lots of things that I wish I didn't profit yeah. off of. Right? I mean, the way I would word it would be like, um, the solution is still staying in this Christian structure, right. like uh, right. propagating ideas and then profiting off of when it goes so awry. Right. I think it's difficult for people in certain religious communities to go against what their religion will actually say, because then you're either discredited or excommunicated, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're you're not seen as credible. Yeah. And plus a lot of these people are still, that's their worldview. They have not faith transitioned. Right. So that's their worldview is to say, well, we have to find the solution within our worldview. Now training and therapy, if you go through good ethical training to become a therapist, which granted only takes two years. So it's not like a ton of training, but it's still a lot more training than a lot of people get. Um, you are expected to look at these biases and to look at these issues, right? But I guess I guess I have some compassion because I can see my development as a as a therapist when you know I started the field of psychotherapy when I was well, when I was in my undergraduate, I my undergraduate degree is psychology, so I guess is 18 years old. But my master's degree I started when I was 23. And by the time I was licensed, I was 27, somewhere around there, right? And I was I was believing that I was offering really good therapy, even though now I can look back and think I was really problematic in some very interesting ways that were not caught by my supervisors, that were not caught by my colleagues, that were actually exacerbated by my Christian colleagues, mm. right? That um, so it's it's difficult. And why I'm so passionate about training people correctly and why therapists really need to do deep work, especially if we come from religious backgrounds, Mm -hmm. to understand where our discriminations and biases are. I mean, I just gave a presentation at the Utah Marriage and Family Therapy Conference this last year. It was not well received by like 60% of the audience, right? That's 60% of colleagues that I'm sure are doing overall pretty good work or even good work. But I think a lot of it is problematic work as well because they haven't done their own personal jobs of catching their influence. So I think back to your question, I think couples like this, the problem is that they're 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 understanding some of the problems within their culture. Obviously they lived them. They're going through it. They're trying to help people within their own community that have the same beliefs and kind of same worldview. Probably for a lot of people who are listening to them just listening to them 
is like the first step to some sexual liberation and some freedom and some permission to think differently than what they did. So they, they are playing a role that's probably important in their community. Um, And yet probably how I would critique them if I got to know them, but I don't know them enough to know really what they offer as the solutions. But my guess is that their solution is still within their system Mm -hmm. that you, you can't, they can't really offer a solution that would be Maybe it'd be healthier for you not to be part of our church community or to not have some of these beliefs. Or have you considered not having some of these beliefs? Usually Christian counselors or Mormon therapists are not bringing up those options. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the options for wellness have to still be within the main system. Mm-hmm. And how they'll do that is they'll minimize and sometimes even gaslight like, oh, well, you don't have to look at it like that. Mm-hmm. You can have a different perspective just because the prophet or the pope or whomever said this or that we can do it differently. And, 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 and it's like, well, you can, that's true. I mean, that's actually an intervention. It's like, well, do you have to follow your leaders? But sometimes it's said in a way that just minimizes how important those teachings are from leaders. And that it's not just easy to ignore them or minimize them um, when you're coming from a system that actually says you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must be so difficult for people um, who are working with religious clients and vice versa, if you have a religiously minded therapist and the friction that that can go into that. Let's, for example, choose like Mormon therapists where we're taught as members of the church that how great your joy will be if you bring one soul unto me in heaven, how much we will rejoice. And what must be going through like a therapist's mind where they are asking good questions about how do you reconsider these beliefs and what kind of like dark thoughts they might have that like offering a different solution to their religious clients would do the opposite, would lead somebody away potentially and how damaging that would be to their own, you know, view of themselves as this good yeah. righteous person within the church that they're by doing what they, they think is healthiest for their clients will lead them out of the church yeah. and how dark that must be. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a very ironic that the study of psychology, even the study of theology, can be big faith transitioning moments for people who are actually wanting to help or wanting to believe more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you hear theologians all the time who go to theology school and it's like, wow, this is not what I expected, right? To learn the history and the the things that just didn't match up with what their kind of more traditional views of what mm-hmm. their religion meant. It's like, oh, the Bible was translated in what way? And yeah. wait, these things are not as historical as I thought, right? And so I think both the fields of, of psychology, philosophy, and theology are not ones that are easy for you to, to stay put in your current belief structure. That's for sure. And I know I felt that way mm-hmm. as I became more um, LGBTQ affirming back in the nineties. And, you know, I was like, Oh, on, on the one hand, I felt really good about how I offered affirming services. On the other hand, I was like, had that self doubt of, Oh, did I just lead somebody astray from the church? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and so you do, you have, there's no way to get into these fields without doing deep personal work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, you're more apt to harm clients. I think we all harm clients. Sadly, I mean, I think that's that's an unfortunate reality that sometimes we just don't show up in a way that that other person needs us to show up in. But that that likelihood is much more high if we have not done our own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the best things I've heard from friends, 
uh, and people that I've interviewed and from myself is sometimes just a therapist says one thing and you need to go to five sessions just for them to say one sentence to, for you to reframe and give you a window that you've never opened before to think of something. And for me, it was a therapist. Uh, we had an episode that we did earlier today, you and me, and Natasha asked me about um, just different things that I've unpacked. And one of them was about uh, potential bisexuality. It's a whole other subject, but but I, I had a little relationships with a couple women here and there throughout my life. Let's not go there. But um, I was talking about one of these relationships with my therapist and all he said to me, when, when I was Mormon, as he said, do you think that that's a sin? Like, is that a sin to you? And I was like, no, no, like I'm LGBTQ affirming. Like, of course, it's not a sin. Yeah, it's not a sin for other people. But it was like, do I think that that's a sin for me? And just asking a question as simple as that, one thing led to another, led to another. It's like, if I don't think that's a sin for somebody else, and I don't think that's a sin for me. Why isn't it a sin for me? Whoa, okay. Everything I believe about like gender and sexuality is going to have to be deconstructed. And it's just like one sentence. And right. you never you never know where that's going to take people or just right. affirming them that they can think of things in a different way that they just never considered before. And, oh, being open-minded sometimes leads people out of, you know, dogmatic yeah. religious structures. Who would have thought? When you asked a question earlier of what's the difference between an ecclesiastical leader and a therapist, and you just hit it on the nose, your therapist asks you, do you think that's a sin? Whereas a priest or a bishop is going to say that is a sin. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny is the church is, is moving in much more small, tiny, affirming ways, and we'll have to see where that takes the church um, to view things as a sin or not sin. Stay tuned to this channel for sure. <laughs> what are some of the inadequate solutions you feel like religions that come from strict purity culture offer up as just these inadequate solutions? Mm, yeah. It's basically this idea that a lot of your worth as a human being is based on how you conduct yourself sexually. Right. And mm -hmm. then also from an idea of there's one right way to conduct yourself sexually. And that is, first of all, to be a sexual person. So purity culture does expect people to be sexual, which not everybody feels that sexual or thinks that sexuality is that important, but that's, everybody should be sexual. Everybody should want to fall in love and get married, right? So there's a relational structure that goes along with purity culture too, which is normative marriage here in the United States and many other countries. And that that should be heterosexual marriage and that you should want to fall in love, have a family, have children. Again, many people don't fall into those categories. And that, that once you're in that type of space, then your sexuality can bloom and thrive and be expressed uh, which doesn't work either because we don't just become sexual beings during a ceremony of marriage, right? We are really sexual beings from birth until death and how we conceive ourselves sexually, how do we behave sexually, what we think about um, sexually, what our identities are. That's all very diverse and complex. So you can see there's this one little box that people should fall into. And, and that's, in a sense, that's the solution that's given. When you say, well, but what if I don't like boys and I'm a girl? Or what if I don't feel like a boy and I was, you know, born into a body that got deemed a boy, right? And, you know, so 
the solution is just like, well, just put all that away. Don't think about it. Just make sure you act in this very heteronormative, allonormative, you know, um, cisnormative way. That's the solution. And if you can't do that, then there's huge costs to pay. Mm -hmm. And from the Christian Mormon perspective, what is the benefit of putting people in that box? Why do they do that if we know that it's best practices tell us otherwise? Well, that's a complex question too. Like what's got all the, day. Yeah. What's the history, right? Why is this the way that we have decided people should be? Um, and here in the United States, of course, we have a very Christian history. We have a very puritanical history. Um, but you can go back towards, you know, Europe, even before the settlers, the colonial settlers came to this country. There were lots of issues and ideas around sexuality um, over in Europe as well. A lot of theologians that would weigh in, a lot of philosophers that would weigh in. I mean, we have a lot of the ideas about women having smaller brains and women having smaller intellect. And those things are really old. They're a lot older than even this country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so why does that seem to work? I mean, I think a lot of it is comfort and what has been known and tradition it's hard to change. It's hard to adapt. It's hard to kind of open your mind to new ways of thinking and ideas. Um, but when I really think about it, the real reason why many of much of this was probably propagated hundreds, if not thousands of years ago was property. When we started deciding that humans could own property and especially in patriarchal systems, um, when the property goes to the father's seed, well, how do you control whose seed is whose and whose kid is whose? And so some of these systems of like monogamy and virtue monitoring and virginity monitoring, uh, especially monitoring and controlling women's bodies had a lot to do with what's coming out of that vagina better belong to my sperm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so with the invention of birth control, eh, um, in you know, just the last couple decades, and finally women being able to not fear that they're going to enter into a lifelong uh, devotion to motherhood, that I think, you know, it's changed the landscape for women to be able to explore more sexually. And a lot of dysfunction is still there because we're using like archaic ideas that are just um, not in line with what we know is best in, in this modern age. And don't have a lot of interest in looking at the underpainting um, influences and reasons that it's so dysfunctional, but just trying to put a a Christian bandaid over it or sell a course or give advice, write a book without talking about the the archaic reasons that they're still holding so tight to. Yeah. Yeah. I think birth control was a game changer. DNA testing was a game changer. You know, now that you can go and get a, a parent test, am I, am I the parent of this child or not? Um, so we've had some technological advances that have definitely changed the, I guess, the the landscape of sexuality for sure. Um, all right, Natasha, um, you're such a wonderful friend, therapist, guest. Always love talking to you. We could talk forever. Uh, <laughs> let everyone know about the uh, workshop, right? What, what is, what's the name of it? The, yeah, yeah, it's a workshop, um, reclaiming female sexuality. And, but before that, you know, ditto, I love talking to you as well. And it's always fun to be on your show and, 
You have such a great energy anyway. So, but yeah. So if you want to know more about me, the place to go is natashahelfer.com. So whether you want to work with me individually or as a couple, I do lots of groups. Uh, if you want to train with me or be supervised by me, if you're a therapist yourself, if you're interested in becoming a sex therapist, all those things I can help you with. Um, I'm also on, on all the social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and try to, you know, give out little tidbits of wisdom from here on there. But yeah, two things that are coming up that are really exciting. Three things, actually. February 9th, I start my Reclaiming Female Sexuality seven-week online group, and I still have room for about five people. So if you want to sign up, let my office know. Uh, we are going to have a, a an event, like a workshop day of Reclaiming Female Sexuality. That's going to be April 20th. Uh, I've invited Kara to actually be one of our speakers. <laughs> so See super, if I have something intelligent to say by then. <laughs> super exciting to have a space where we can gather and talk about a lot of these things, um, get some education, have some experiential experiences. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about anatomy. We're going to talk about self-determination. We're going to talk about drive. We're going to help you understand why you may feel the way you do about your drive if you're not you know, comfortable with it. Uh, pleasure is the measure after all, as Emily Nagoski has said. So that's going to be really exciting and fun, a fun day from like 9 to 6 p.m. So it's a full day. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also have a couples retreat coming up in October, which uh, for folks who want to come, you know, if you're in any type of long-term relationship, um, these are like, like they talked about in Purity culture, we don't just get messages about sex, we get messages about how relationships should work. Mm -hmm. And that's really problematic. So whether you've left religion or just want to know what actual healthy principles are for long-term relationships, we dive into so many things through that three and a half day weekend. So feel free Amazing. to look that for that too. Yes. Everybody wants to have better relationships, better sex, who wouldn't want to spend some time with Natasha and a bunch <laughs> of other dysfunctional people? Just and me! Yay! So I'll leave all the links below for that. That's going to be so fun. And this is kind of where my heart is more than anything. I love deconstruction. I love helping people find better tools. I love Natasha. And I also love healthy, happy sex and finding better tools than the ones that we left behind. And That's right. could not be a better opportunity for people, listeners to go get some, get some healing, get some tools and try to lead a better life. So it sounds amazing. Right. Um, please check out all of Natasha's links below. I've been telling people I'm going to have a very diverse rollout of historians and therapists and people with interesting stories that I think will help uh, in this faith deconstruction community at large and the ex-mormons of course always have my heart so if you want to help support this channel i can now have uh, subscriptions on youtube that you can join i have some fun perks i have my patreon.com slash uh ho so that's where my hotown community is and it's a fun time over there trying to get a discord going but generally you just have any uh tips you want to add the button for my donor box is down below. Everything is now tax deductible because I am a 501c3 nonprofit. So <laughs> what, what, uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in and supporting this channel. Love you guys. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you. See you next time on another episode of the Mormon history hoedown. Love you so much.